Customers are okay with missing out. They're convinced they could succeed, but what they're worried about is not failing. Going out and trying to use a discount or a FUD, uh, create a burning platform with somebody who's convinced that the status quo is suboptimal, convinced that you working with you is the better option and convinced it's a priority, but instead is worried about failing, actually can make things worse. They're not afraid of missing out. They're afraid of messing up. My name's Mike Lander, and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in partnership with The Drum, where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors. Matt, uh, Matt Dixon, amazing to have you here today uh, on the Marketing Negotiations podcast with The Drum. So welcome. It's great to be with you, Mike. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, thanks for joining us. From uh, you're over in Washington, yeah? That's right. Uh, just outside Washington D.C. Yeah. Perfect. So, for the audience that are listening, uh, do you want to just like introduce yourself, Matt? Uh, sure. Background and kind of uh, what you do now, but also one unusual thing about you. Oh, okay. So um, maybe my background will be the unusual thing. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <Maybe. laughs> but uh, I so uh, I am a founding partner of a firm called DCM Insights. We are a, a research. Uh, Organization that is my that is my background. I'm a uh, sales, customer service, customer experience researcher. Um, I've never done sales. I have tremendous respect for people who do it for a living, but uh-huh. I uh, I study sales. So think of me as like a sales anthropologist. So I um, ah, I've really, you know kind of made my career um, uh, just going out studying with data, uh, quantitative and qualitative approaches to understand two things. I think one is how are customers evolving how they buy. You know, what, what is changing in the buyer landscape? And then as an implication of that, what do the best salespeople understand about that? And how have they adapted their sales approach? It, it's what we call in the research is kind of the lead steer effect. If you want to find out what everyone will be doing in five years, look at what the very best are doing right now, because they, they sense the direction in the market shifting or the wind changing direction, and they adapt their approach accordingly. So that's what I do. I've, uh, I've written a few books on this topic and uh, a number of articles, uh, to do a lot of podcasts like this one, um, and I enjoy I enjoy talking about this stuff, um, and I uh, always learn something new myself through these conversations. Something interesting, if if that's not interesting, I guess um, I have four kids. Uh, wow, so that uh, that keeps me <laughs> quite oh, busy. Oh my word, Matt, yeah. you look so young. <laughs> uh, well, I'm old inside, Mike. So <laughs> this is um, and this is a frontal view. If you looked at the back, I'm losing my hair. So it's. <laughs> Four, but, wow, amazing, yeah. amazing. I've only got one, but four, wow, that'd be... Well, you can, yeah. uh, I could send some mine over for the summer in London, it'd be oh, great. Oh, no, 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 it's okay, Matt, thank you. Very kind of you, but I'm busy all summer, all summer. <laughs> Let's negotiate, maybe I'll send you two instead of four. Yeah, what, are you going to trade me with Matt? What are you offering? I'm not seeing You're a friend. deal here. <laughs> um, let's just talk about kind of, um, so obviously, you know, we're, we're recording this now in February yeah. 2023. Um the world's just in a in a just awfully unusual, yeah. shocking, in some areas, tragic place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so without mentioning anything specific, but most of us, most countries around the world are, fla- in, are facing some kind of inflationary pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing is lots of uncertainty. Yeah, interest rates all over the place. Yeah, and that changes buyer behavior. So yeah, in a negotiation context. What are you kind of like seeing uh, broadly as a kind of direction of travel? Yeah, uh, great question. So we um, 
we just, and this is, I think maybe we're, we're, we'll veer in this conversation for a little bit and then we can maybe talk some, about some of the prior work too, because I think some of that has bearing on, on negotiating with the modern buyer. Um, the, so the, the most recent work we did, we published in a book called The Jolt Effect. It came out in September. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you just briefly because I'm, a, I'm a, a, an anthropologist, I'm a nerd. <laughs> you know, so this is, I like I, the I, sales I, anthropologist <laughs> thing. I think that's brilliant. Oh, thank you. No, uh, I, I can't take credit for it. Somebody else used that the other day. I'm like, that is a good description that's of what I great, do. That's a great, great so, phrase. Uh, like the Jane Goodall of uh, sales. So, yeah, <laughs> fantastic. So I basically, we, we went out... Uh, it, you know, we've it, well in the previous work we've done, we've we've used surveys, we've done a lot of interviews, and we had a unique opportunity in March of 2020 to study sales in a very different way. Because you remember that was a time when sales went 100% virtual, literally overnight. Um, yes, we were doing some subset of our interactions across the the sales process on Zoom or Teams or other virtual platforms. But in March of 2020, it flipped to 100% virtual. So that meant that even the most critical conversations, those critical negotiation conversations or consensus building conversations or executive uh, decision maker, C-level executive interactions happened on Zoom. And when that happened, um, for us as researchers, it afforded a unique opportunity, which was because it was all happening virtually, we could record all those interactions. And the technology now exists to study that at scale using machine learning. So we actually collected uh, two and a half million sales calls from several dozen two and companies. Two and a half across, million. Two and a half million from several dozen companies over the span of about 18 months, starting in the spring of 2020. And we analyzed them using a machine learning platform from a company called Tether. And what we... we so, this surfaced, is, so just to rewind a second, Matt. So yeah. this is literally, you've taken two and a half million sales calls of all sorts yep. that yep. you've recorded, obviously with permission, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Um, You've then applied a machine learning technology yeah. to all of those um, audio uh, recordings, yeah. Yeah. and you've started to run algorithms to work out what is going on. Is there any common trait? Yeah, yeah, you wow. nailed it. And so now you've got to be you've got to go with an angle of attack. I think in a big data set like that, because we'd ask, we could ask a data set like that many hey, questions. You need uh, a hypothesis, or else where are you going to go? One hundred percent. Yeah. So we are. We would become fascinated by this problem that has been the bane of the the existence of the salesperson for a very long time, which is the unexplainable loss, the no decision loss. Yes. You know, and particularly frustrating for salespeople when that client tells you that they are that they are dissatisfied with the status quo. They tell you that you are the solution provider they want to move forward with. They tell you this is a huge priority for us to get this done in our company. And then they just kind of disengage, they ghost you, they go radio silent, the deal kind of slips through your fingers and you chase it for a while, try to float your proposal back to the top of their box. You know, you try the change of voice strategy, get your boss to call them and leave a voicemail. None of it works. And eventually your boss says, we've wasted enough time here. Market has closed, lost, no decision. But I don't think in sales we ever had a really good or at least complete explanation as to one, why does that happen? Why do buyers do that? And two, what do the best salespeople do differently to avoid that happening to them? Now, so Matt, this could be, this is amazing, uh, around the ghosting. Yeah. 99 out of 100 people that I speak to that are selling complain at the moment about increased levels of ghosting. Yes. And they're yes. saying, I don't understand what's going on. It's not, it's discourteous. You know, it seems really rude. And I'm like, they're not being rude. Something's happening Correct. on the yeah. buy side. And I said, I don't know what that is. But it's not they're being rude. Something yeah. else is going on. So this will be fascinating. So what did you find? 
Now, when we found it, um, you know, keep in mind, this number, uh, this data point was pulled in, uh, I would say it was the spring of 2022 when we were putting the finishing touches on the manuscript. We yeah. found that anywhere between 40 and 60% of the average seller's qualified pipeline will ultimately be lost to no decision. Wow. Now, if you think about the way the, the pie breaks up. qualified pipeline. So I've gone from being people are aware, I've gone into the top of the funnel, you know, right. we've done our MQLs, our SQLs, and we're now at the stage of we're it's a qualified buyer, we're engaged, right. we're having discussions. Yep. Of those, of those, yep. half that, may yep. well be lost because of no decision. So roughly, roughly the way I think about it, the pie and how it breaks out is you've got, uh, in our analysis, it was 26%, but we'll just round it to 24, 25% to make it the math easy. 25% win rate, so those are deals we win. Another 25% where we lose, uh, but the customer tells us we're losing. So they say, we've gone with your competitor. We've decided to stay with our status quo. We've decided this is not a priority for us right now. We're not interested. Those are declared losses. We understand the reason why. But that means that half of our pipeline, the other half, the other 50%, is unexplained, uh, no decision losses. And most of the time, uh, those are customers who, who, some of them will do us the courtesy of saying, uh, we're delaying, right? We're kicking the can down. They don't say that, but we're delaying this decision. Now is not the time, right time. But the vast majority of them disengage without telling the salesperson. And because salespeople don't know that because they're an optimistic, you know, they're optimistic people. If the customer hasn't said no, then they might say yes. And so I keep pursuing it until my manager tells me to they stop. They haven't said right? no yet. They're still in my pipeline. Hope they're springs still in my pipeline. Yeah. yeah. And you got to love that about uh, salespeople, but it, it can be a huge productivity uh, sink. So, so two questions then. Why does this happen and what do the best salespeople do differently? So, And can you talk about, if you can, yeah. I have this big thing about lead and lag indicators. I'm always saying to people, you've got to look at the lead indicators yeah. because the lag one is the rear view mirror. Yeah. So yeah. what are the lead indicators? <laughs> Let me hit on that first, actually, because um, I've now spoken since the book came out. This is not in the yeah. book, but I've now spoken to a number of companies that have done their own research uh, around this. Some we, companies that uh, are vendors in the win-loss space. So they're doing win-loss uh, consulting. They provide software solutions to do this. They've done, some of these companies have done their own research, and they found that a couple of the indicators they look for that are predictive, highly predictive of, of a lost deal, one would be number of changes in deal size. So when the deal gets bigger, they get smaller, they gets bigger, gets smaller. So interestingly, they found that to be a predictor. They also found that when, uh, obviously, uh, past nor like once it reaches reaches a certain standard deviation from the typical uh, uh, sales cycle, right? So our sales cycle is six months. This is at nine months, a good indicator, right? But at that point, you might argue that's actually a lagging indicator. It's, not a leading it's a, indicator. almost a lagging indicator. Yeah, exactly. Almost. The other one that I think this is quite interesting as well is changes in frequency. And if you can get the data in the robustness of interaction, so specifically. Yes. Going from quite robust email exchanges that happen almost every every few days, we're quite engaged to um, short responses that happen very infrequently. When that starts to happen, the customer it's an early indicator of the customer starting to pull away and disengage. When it takes multiple, you know, floating this at to the top of your inbox, want to make sure you saw this. Want want to make sure this didn't get caught up in spam. Want to make sure we're so you know, and the customer gets. Back, I'll get back to you Matt, later. I you sent know. two today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all do. I'm just think, checking in. I, I'm you know? pretty sure I said a couple of those as well. Yeah, you know. Are you still interested? <laughs> so anyway, I, I digress. But those are all good. Um, uh, no, but Matt, this is fascinating. This is like 
everyone's been literally the last six months, everyone's saying to me, why am I being ghosted? Is it a negotiation issue? Did I do something wrong? Are they talking to their new best friend? Well, sometimes they are talking to their new best friend because they're looking for some competitive tension. And then they might re-engage in three months later or three weeks later. But what you're saying is, unsurprisingly, there's more to it than that. It's more nuanced than that. Your your question is the right one, Mike, is why am I being ghosted? And here's what we found. Let me uh, let me first set this up by saying uh, some, sharing something that really surprised us that came out of the, the research right away. So the, the classic approach for salespeople, if you think about the sale as a three-act play, where act one is we engage our customers in their status quo, the way they do things today. They use a competitor solution. They Maybe they do use our product, but in a very narrow sense. Could be an in-house solution. Could be an in-house solution, yeah. right? Uh, DIY, what have you. Yeah. The the second act in the play is we got to get them to acknowledge that that status quo is suboptimal and that they want they should move forward in a new way with us as a provider. That's we call that the agreement on a vision stage. And and the third act is we got to get them to go from saying they want it to actually buying it to to consummate the purchase, sign on the dotted line, execute the agreement. Now, salespeople have long been taught. What we found in the analysis is quite interesting. Is that usually where things tend to fall apart. Um, for salespeople is oftentimes between the point where the customer agrees on the vision, but before the point where they actually execute the agreement, things start to go can often go sideways. It can feel like the customer's wringing their hands there, relitigating objections and concerns that you thought had been put to bed long ago. And now it, as a salesperson, it feels like this one is slipping away from me. And I've seen this movie before and I know how it's going to end. Now, what salespeople have been taught for a very long time is the only reason that's happened is because you have failed to beat the customer status quo. They and we know. Look, we know there's a lot of social science behind this. Uh, people are wired to avoid change. Uh, they the principle of conservation of energy is hardwired into all of us as human beings. We will pass up on golden opportunities sitting right in front of us just so we don't have to change and we can keep doing more of the same. So it takes quite a bit to get the customer off the fence and get them to move forward. Right? Does this play to the work that Cialdini did years ago as well? It it did actually um, about this kind of like ten times the effect on loss versus gain thing. Yeah, yeah. This is um, I'll get to that in a moment because that, therein lies the explanation for what we found. But Matt, you've got to come to London. We could carry I, on all evening. No, 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 no. I see many. Carry I on. see many many pints in our future. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, okay. So so he so salespeople exist in this world. They've been told for a very long time. It's it's always if it's it's always a value problem, right? It's because you haven't beaten the status quo. You haven't convinced the customer that what they're doing today is not good enough. You haven't convinced them that you are the preferred provider, in that the difference between what you can provide versus what they're doing today is enormous. And you haven't convinced them it's a top priority. It's got to be one of those things. Yeah. So we tell salespeople to go back back and beat the status quo. Now in sales calls, there are three different techniques salespeople use. The first one is they try to reconvince the customer of the benefits of their solution. Mike, you must have missed how many zeros were on that ROI projection I sent your way. Or, or you must have blinked when we were in the demo environment because everyone else is really blown away by this, but you seem very nonplussed. So let me show it to you again. You know, um, yeah. Let okay. me beat you over the head with it several right. times. Right. <laughs> like, How could you say no to how? This is so cool. How could you say no? The second attempt, so when that fails, the second attempt, yeah. it, things get a bit darker. They, we go from this carrot to the stick, and we start to try to create the burning platform, dial up the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You know, Mike, all of your, I don't know if I mentioned this, but all of your competitors use our platform, and they're experiencing tremendous benefits. And meanwhile, if you pass up on this, like, look, Mike, these problems are not going to solve themselves. You can't afford not to fix this. 
Uh, well, I'm busy. Tomorrow morning, I'm flying to Atlanta. I won't be around anymore. <laughs> no, there you go. Sounds like so, Glen Gary, Glenn Ross. That's right. <laughs> then uh, the third technique, when those two, those two fail to motivate the customer to act, the third technique is almost always a discount that's only good this quarter. <laughs> so it's oh, always, always, oh, no, always. We're in the discount bucket. Yeah. Oh, so, no. Now, I would, I would bucket all of these as uh, FOMO tactics. So either you're going to miss out on the benefits, you're going to miss out on solving for your terrible state of affairs, your terrible you're terrible status quo. You're going miss out on this deal, right? Well, now, that none of that surprises. We found that when the customer starts to vibrate and things start to go sideways, 75% of salespeople go back and roll out that FOMO playbook. But this part did surprise us. That 84% of the time, it actually makes things worse, not better. It actually increases the odds the deal will be lost to no decision. Wow. This was surprising to us because, you know, in the challenger sale, we talk about how challengers, one of the things that that exemplifies a challenger is their uh, ability to overcome the status quo bias of the customer, to show the customer the pain of same is worse than the pain of change. And in fact, they're, they're world-class at all of those techniques I just mentioned. Um, and so how could it be that, that this playbook, which has been passed down for generations in sales, actually makes things worse? We didn't understand why until we dug into the data uh, a click deeper. And here's what we found. We found no decision losses are actually born of, of two different drivers. And, and we're going to go to this uh, Cialdini point that you mentioned here in a moment. The first driver is the one I talked about. The customer just prefers their status quo. I believe what I'm doing today is good enough. I don't believe your solution is a compelling enough reason to change, or this isn't a priority for me. Um, so that is a big reason. But it turns out that's less than half of no decision losses. It's only 44% of no decision losses. 56% of the time has nothing to do with the status quo or their preference for it has to do with their fear of failure and the indecision that that rots uh, on the customer. So it is their indecisiveness, which itself is a function of their fear of making a mistake. Now, you mentioned the Cialdini uh, finding, and this is this idea of loss aversion, prospect theory, you know, Cialdini and Kahneman and Sversky and all these fa- uh, great social scientists, what they found was something that all salespeople are familiar with. It's why we dial up the FUD. It's why we use the disappearing discount because we know people hate to lose. We know they're more motivated to avoid loss than to maximize gain. However, there's an important wrinkle to that research, which is there are two types of loss we need to be aware of. The first type of loss is an error of omission, which is when we experience a loss by doing nothing. We failed, we sat on the fence, we sat on the sidelines, we failed to act, and we experienced a loss as a result. It's a loss due to inaction. The other is called an error of commission. That is a loss not from inaction, but from action. You made a decision. We made the wrong decision. Exactly. You made the. You chose the wrong path. You chose the wrong course of action. You made the wrong decision. And you are personally responsible for the loss. Even if the two losses in either scenario are exactly the same size, we far prefer the loss due to inaction, the error of omission, than the loss due to action, the error of commission. It's called the omission bias. And what we found in, in the simple terms for salespeople is... And it's why fear of failure is actually a bigger driver of no decision losses than preference for the status quo, is that it turns out for customers, the FOMO, the fear of missing out, matters a lot less than the FOMU, the fear of messing up. The not safe for work version is the FOFU. I'll let your listeners figure out on their own what that stands for. <laughs> but, uh, but, but that's the thing. Customers are okay with missing out. They are not okay with messing up. Now, if we bring us full circle before we talked about how that, that age-old bag of tricks, the FOMO playbook backfires, but think about it for a moment. When the customer is worried about failing, they're not worried about, they're not, they're convinced they could succeed, but what they're worried about is not failing, right? They don't want to fail. Going out and trying to 
use a discount to or or a FUD, uh, you create a burning platform with somebody who's convinced that the status quo is suboptimal, convinced that you working with you is the better option and convinced it's a priority, but instead is worried about failing, actually can make things worse. Because what you're doing is you're using scare tactics to sell to a customer who's already afraid, but they're not afraid of missing out. They're afraid of messing up. Now, what they're afraid of messing up is actually an equally fascinating question. Um, it turns out, I'll, and then I'll shut up and I'll uh, you'll let uh, <laughs> go wherever you want. No, 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 Matt, but, it's fascinating. So there are three specific things we found in in our data, and this actually turns out is not just two and a half million sales calls. This is actually well documented in the science of indecision. Uh, there are psychologists who made their entire careers studying why people become indecisive, and it turns out there are three big things. The first one is choice overload. So when we face too many options and we don't know which one to choose. So for any of your listeners who are out there selling solutions that have different bells and whistles, different versions, different integrations, different contract lengths, different rollout strategies, you know, narrow versus enterprise-wide, when you put lots of options in front of people, what they worry about is choosing the wrong one. And the safest course of action is to choose none of them, uh, you know, to choose none. The second... Um, uh, concern. The second fear of failure stems from information overload. So this is when the customer feels like they're not being told the complete truth by the salesperson. It is their job to be a smart consumer, and they are going to try, by God, to consume as much content out there to become a smart buyer. I'm going to read all the white papers. I'm going to listen to all the webinars. I'm going to read all the Gardner Magic Quadrant reports. I'm going to talk to everybody in my LinkedIn network and leave no stone unturned. Because what I really want to avoid is, in a world where the salesperson is not completely forthcoming, uh, what I need to make sure I avoid is being surprised after the purchase is made by some new piece of information that could have been discovered before the the, um, purchase was made. The third uh, fear of failure has to do with something, um, I might call this expectations overload. So you got choice overload, information overload, expectations overload. This is where the customer gets really concerned that they won't see the full benefits from the purchase. So and what's so interesting about this, Mike, is that customers, in our analysis, don't often blame the vendor. They don't usually say, I don't think you guys are capable of delivering those returns. What they do is they blame their own company. They say, Mike, you don't understand. Yes, I know all of your customers get a 10x ROI. We screw this stuff up all the time. We are so dysfunctional. There's no way we could get that in. I cannot walk into the CFO's office and put a business case in front of that person with that kind of projection because it's never going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, that's not just a bad look. In today's environment, that could mean losing your job. So especially in an environment where there's so much budget scrutiny, there's so much uncertainty, as we talked about before, um, we need to be especially dialed in on why our customers right now are ghosting us, why they're hesitating, why they're hitting the pause button. And we need a playbook for overcoming, which is what what the Jolt Effect is all about. It's It's a playbook we distilled from the research, which we can talk more about. Uh, as we go around how high performers do that. So, Matt, the um, the Jolt book that's out, are there tactics in there for understanding yeah. how to flush out what's really going on? Yeah, uh, there there are. It's um, there there are, and then there's some things we found out that are not in the book. So I'll share with your listeners uh, here. The Jolt is an acronym, so it stands for judging the level of indecision, offering your recommendation, limiting the customer's exploration, and taking risk off the table. So. What you're talking about uh, here, Mike, is the J. It's judging the level of indecision. How do we tell what we're dealing with here? And, and there's a funny thing about indecision, which is that because it is about fear of failure, it's about it's about loss of reputation or maybe even losing your job. Customers don't like talking about this stuff. Uh, very. If you if you ask your customers how many of you think you're decisive, 
100% of them will say yes. <laughs> you know, I absolutely, very decisive decision maker. The data tells a very different story. We found that 87% of these two and a half million sales calls were with customers demonstrating either moderate or high levels of indecision. So the decisive decision makers are a are minority, a, a very small minority. If you find those people, you should sell as much as you can to them all day long. But the reality is that indecision is everywhere and we've got to deal with it. But the question is, how do we surface it? How do we get it on the table in, a, in an environment where customers, you know, nobody's going to raise their hand and say, Mike, I, I can be honest with you. I'm afraid that if I advocate for your company's solution, I might get fired. Like that's not something your customer is going to, to bring up. And so how do you make it okay to talk about it? So this part is in the book, we talk about the importance of, we say, listening between the lines. So how do you pick up on signs of indecision that might even come across as a good thing, but actually are masking some indecision below the waterline? And you need to dial in your active listening to pick up on it. But the other technique, and this is not in the book, uh, uh, that we surfaced in some analysis we did after the, the manuscript was submitted to the, the publisher, is a technique that high performers have developed to get these fears of failure on the table, but in a way that classically taught sales techniques fail uh, to deliver. So for instance, asking your customer, you know, Mike, are you afraid of getting fired? Are you afraid of failing here? Are you afraid that you're chosen? You know, it's not a great question. It might get you, you know, uh, dis- might get your customer to to disconnect from you entirely. Might get you like, walked out of the room. Yeah. Probably, probably. Um, and even some classic techniques, sales techniques, like looking for verification that the customer's tracking with us. Those are very, that's a very important technique. So saying, you know, Mike, are we ready to move this on? Do we have consensus from the buying committee? Are we ready to move this on to legal and procurement for review? Um, that's an important technique, but it serves a different purpose because you could easily have a customer who's still worried about messing up, but is is gladly handing this off to somebody else while they're still stewing about this fear of failure. Which is wasting more of a salesperson's time. Exactly, because and now they're being duped into thinking this thing is moving towards the finish line. In fact, it might be moving farther away from the, the finish line. So the technique is one, um, I, I'd use a, an analogy from uh, submarine warfare. I know that's an, probably, you are probably the only guest who's going to talk about this. But, uh, you are. So and now we're all fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, I, I'll, I'll give myself away as somebody who doesn't know a heck of a lot about submarine warfare, but maybe have seen the Huffer in October. Huffer in October, times. I was going to say, Sean <laughs> Connery. That's all you need to know, right? Yeah. So you remember in the movie where, uh, where uh, Sean Connery's uh, ordering his crew to gauge the distance to the enemy sub, send out, send out one ping, one ping only. So pings are something that a surface ship might use to detect a submarine that they suspect is in the vicinity, but they're not entirely sure. It's literally the way active sonar works. So I send out this noise and I listen for the reflection back. The reflection tells me, is it a submarine or is it a whale? It tells me if it's a submarine, is it an enemy submarine or a friendly submarine? Is it heading towards me or away from me? Is it opening its torpedo Because they have sonic signatures. Exactly. That's exactly right. So it's the same technique in sales. So the way it might work, a ping might work in sales. And think about this. This is, if it's, it's the same principle, trying to send out a signal and listen for a reflection back. In sales, this is the, the high-performing salesperson trying to articulate the fear they think the customer is struggling with. But do it in a way that doesn't out the customer, doesn't embarrass the customer, doesn't get them walked out of the office, and gets the customer to want to talk about it. So it might sound something like this. Uh, you know, Mike, I, we've been talking uh, for a few months now, and, and I know and maybe we've done you, you a disservice here. We're very proud of what we do here. We've shown you a lot of options. We've shown you different integrations, different, you know, we've done a million different demo, demos now. You've talked to a lot of our reference customers. We're really proud of what we do. 
but I get the sense right now that you're struggling a bit with what's nice to have and what's need to have. What's the right way to start doing business with us? And what can you wait to add on later? And I just want to let you know, if you're struggling with that, you're not alone because every customer at this point in the sale struggles with the same exact question. Because again, we put a lot in front of them and we like to, we like to sketch, paint the art of the possible. So give me a sense. Are you in that camp? Are you struggling a little bit with what, what you should decide to buy and what you should decide to pass on? That's going to generate a reaction from you of, yeah, actually, I am struggling with that. I could use some help. And, and we can't have it all. Budget and resources are limited, and I cannot afford to make the wrong choice. Or you might say, no, Matt, I'm, we're quite com- comfortable with what's in and out of the proposal. What we're actually worried about is this ROI that we're about to build a business case on, and I'm about to put my name to in front of the CFO. I'm just not sure how we're going to accomplish that. You know, So it gets that com- confirmation or that denial, and, but it does it in a way that's it's not just your problem. This is something everybody struggles with. Now we can talk about it. For a salesperson, that's important for three reasons. One, it tells me, what do I need to do to, to overcome this? Right? What am I dealing with? What's the source of this customer's uh, fear of failure? Two, how do I forecast this opportunity? Is how, how deep is this indecision? Is this coming in next quarter or next year? Um, and lastly, in certain extreme cases, should I actually continue to spend time on this opportunity? Is, are they too far gone? Should I actually disqualify it? put it on the back burner and just keep stay engaged with the customer, but don't spend my valuable and scarce time on it. So I suspect anyone listening to this podcast, and there'll be a lot of people listening to this podcast, um, if they're at home, they've got two pages of notes because <laughs> right. there's been this... You can send um, Mike your bill for carpal tunnel, tunnel surgery. Exactly. <laughs> there's this fire hydrant of kind of information and insights that they've got. Um Pick up on a few things, and, and obviously, I'm I'm, st- I'm saying the obvious, and I'm not trying to be a show for the book. But there's there's a on each of those four techniques, there's a full chapter, and we get into the psychology of choice overload, information overload, expectations overload, and then the specific techniques high performers use. We just talked about one of them, but there, there's yeah. a lot more there. Obviously, listeners, and that's all in the book, Jolt. Yep, that's right. That's right. Perfect. Um, so one thing you just reminded me of a conversation in 1998. <laughs> so I was ex-professional services kind of big five consulting and they yeah. taught really, really well how to how to sell big deals. We used to call it issues-based consulting yep. back in the day. And one of the techniques they gave us was never tell a customer what their problem is, mm. but use the language. What we find with customers yeah. like you yeah. in your kind of industry, yeah. what we find is there are three or four big challenges at this stage they face. Yeah. And then we'd describe the challenges and then we'd say, do any of those kind of resonate with you at all? Yeah. And they go, yeah, 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 yeah that one, that one, that one over there, that one, that one, that's mine. <laughs> it's brilliant. And Mike, you've got, I know, and I want to tip my mitt, but you've got uh, coming up my good, a longtime friend and, and co-author and collaborator, Brent Adamson's coming up. Ask Brent about that because that's one of his favorite questions and one of his favorite techniques. Oh, is it? Goes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You really... You nailed it. He's going to love talking about that. <laughs> so. so listeners, watch out for the episode with yeah. uh, Brent Adamson. That'll be fantastic. So one thing that occurred to me in this discussion about negotiation, and then we'll kind of yeah. wrap up some, some kind of key insights, lessons learned. During a negotiation process, one of the things that I find uh, with lots of clients and my own experience is important about flushing out is this real, is yeah. making small commitments. Mm-hmm. We talked before the show about listing out your negotiation variables. And there might be eight or nine things you're negotiating around. So never believe as a salesperson, it's just around price. Yep. There's price, there's scope, there's intellectual property rights, there's contract duration, there's termination rights. There's at least kind of like nine or 10 
that I could yep. just yeah, mention now. What you're looking for, I believe, is, is that as you go through the negotiation, you lay these out at the same time. You keep a few back because you want to hold some things back for a discussion later on, which we want to talk about before. Um, but as you lay these things out, you're looking for them to make small commitments. Well, I can't do 14-day payment terms. Uh, okay, yep. uh, why not? Um, and that asking why not, what's their interest, what, what's motivating them to say yes or no yep. um, is really important. Yeah, And then you might get them to 45 days in exchange for a change of scope or a, a change in the pricing structure or a change in the IP. You're, you're making those trade-offs. The yeah. more of that that happens with, if I'm negotiating with you, Matt, I'm trying to collaborate with you. All the research tells us if we can build a relationship with our counterparty as well as focus on the substance of the deal, there's a far better chance of us both getting what we need yeah. rather than an adversarial approach. Yes, where one person wins and one person loses, right? Yeah. And, and I would say, again, no research base, but the empirical evidence I have is well over 80% of deals, 80% of deals are win-lose. Yeah. One side is claiming value over the other. Yeah. It's yeah. quite rare to have a true collaborative win-win negotiation. Yeah, um, uh, I, I think you're right. It, Mike, everything I've... Um, I've seen in my career and talking to a lot of high-performing salespeople, and I think um, I won't profess to be an expert on negotiation uh, per se, but talking to high performers who who do this day in and day out, that is certainly what you hear. You hear that um, striving for a win-win. And sometimes it's an overused term, but it, but it point, it's so rare that it actually happens. But their mindset is not the negotiation is not something to be won or lost. It's it's to achieve mutual benefit here. And yeah. and there's always a give and take, right? Uh, if I'm giving something up, I'm getting something in return. If I'm getting something, I need to give something up in return. And uh, I think one of the hallmarks of of top negotiators, and you hit on this, is that in top salespeople, is that they go in with that set of negotiables, with those variables articulated, prioritized in terms of easiest to give up, hardest to give up, some kept in in reserve, keeping their powder dry for those follow up conversations and requests. And what they don't run into is that price-driven conversation. I mean, I jokingly said, you know, uh, the, the knee-jerk reaction for most salespeople when the customer asks them for a 5 or 10% price concession, they say, well, I can't give you uh, 10%, but I can get you 5%. And maybe if, if my boss, Mike, approves 6%, I might be able to, but don't hold, you know, Mike's a tough guy. And he, I don't know, he's <laughs> never approved that before. And then you wouldn't be getting the steepest discount. You've been the first one. Yeah, and now I'm thinking like as, as most average salespeople are thinking I'm now negotiating, you know, because um, I didn't give the customer what they asked for, but we're we're meeting them halfway or whatever. But you're not negotiating; you're losing because you didn't come in with a thoughtful plan. And I think sometimes that's just a product of a lack of preparation. You're, it's a deer in the headlights moment, and the only way we can think to respond is is not what high performers do, which acknowledge the request, then defer and say, "Let's get back to the value and let's talk about all the different things that we could do to enhance the value." that actually are going to mean a lot more to you than a 10% discount. Um, rather than doing that, they get kind of deer in the headlights and they go right into that price-driven discussion and then they're just losing, right? By the way, uh, Matt, in the, mind, in the mind of the procurement buyer, yeah. what you've just signaled to me, we talked about signaling before as being really important. If you agree to a 7.5% discount, yeah. what you've told me is... You were overcharging me 7.5% before. Yeah. <laughs> so the start thing is, there's no yeah. trade there yeah. That's just an overcharge. Yeah. How much more there is? <laughs> I'll come back to Matt on that one next time. Yeah. Before we close the deal, it might have to be another like 8%. We'll see how far we can go. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's an interesting yeah. thing that happens in that trade around price negotiation is um, it should be a non-linear curve. As you start to change the price point in exchange for other tradables yeah. that you need and that you want in exchange for a change in the pricing structure, you need to signal to the, the other side there's a non-linear relationship here. So yeah. you're getting down to the end of the, the yeah. curve quite quickly. Yeah. The biggest yeah. mistake is to make a big drop initially. Then you're yeah. doomed. You're really yeah. doomed. Because now I'm sat there going, so you were ripping me off, Matt. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and I think you, you know, you hit on this really important point, Mike, which is making that big concession and asking for nothing in return clearly signals that this was price gouging. That's and right. you just squeeze. And then how much harder could you squeeze and get more, right? Because if there's if there was some fat in that in that pricing, then there must be some elsewhere. And so we're gonna we're gonna work and we're gonna call all of that from this deal. And what do you call it? FOMO, fear of yeah, fear of messing up. Yeah. Fear of messing up. If I if I negotiate a bad deal just on price, value, commercial terms, and my boss finds out, yeah, then I may well get fired. Yeah, certainly in today's environment where companies are looking to uh, shed headcount, especially you know headcount that's costing that money. So yeah, that is a that is something that customers desperately want to avoid. Um, and I think it's it's quite interesting because you know there is you hit on something else, Mike. That is uh, certainly a hallmark of top salespeople. We talk about you know think about that information overload problem. Uh, what the reason that the customer wants to do. So much research, and it's it's impossible for the salesperson to say immediately, you know, like you don't need to read any of those Gartner reports. You, you don't need to check with people in your LinkedIn network or do ref. Just trust me. Is because the customer doesn't trust you, and it's not because of anything you've done. It's because of the agency dilemma and the fact that they've been oversold, uh, overpromised, underdelivered, burned in the past by other vendors, other salespeople who have hit the ball, who have put one over on them. And so you've got to understand as a salesperson, your customer before you even say hello you are working with a deficit of trust. And so you've got to rebuild that. And the way we found in this call analysis, this is interesting, you just you find these specific things they say to build that bank of goodwill. So for instance, when you are forthcoming and tell the customer things like, you know, Mike, I've got to be honest, um, we do have that capability on our platform, but it's not actually ready for prime time. We're still ironing out the kinks. Or Mike, I know you're looking at the premium version, but I actually think the basic version would be just fine for your company and your needs. We can always expand into that later. Or, you know, um, I might encourage you to actually, I know you want to roll this out enterprise-wide. I'd love to sell that to you. Uh, that would make my year. But I actually think what we see from our best customers is, let's start a little bit smaller. Get, get a some, pilot going. Get a pilot going and let's expand from there. Or how about this? We found some very kind of gutsy, uh, but but quite transparent salespeople saying, you know, Mike, I'd, I'd love to do business with you, but based on your needs, I actually think our competitor is way better suited to help you than we are. I, I don't think we're the right partner for you. Those moments teach the customer, you're not here to hide the ball, you're here to get them to a great decision. And, and that's super important because then you can leverage that, that trust and cash it in later by telling the customer, Mike, I, I don't think a fifth reference call is going to teach you any more than the other four have taught you. It's, it's not going to be a good spend of your time What's really holding this up? Help me help you. What's what's behind your request? What are you trying to answer that hasn't already been addressed? Let's see if we can get there together. And if the right answer is not buying our solution or buying from our competitor, so be it. Let's make sure we get to that right decision. So something else. So just I am uh, I keep saying we'll close and we don't, but that's, that's because it's so it really is generally interesting. Again, in negotiation, when I'm training and coaching salespeople, but high-performing salespeople or people that are our foundation uh, salespeople. Yeah. 
one of the things I talk about is around uh, gravitas. So um, salespeople that have a lot of gravitas have the ability to say, you know, Matt, something's going on here. It's not about you or about me, but something's going on with the situation that yep. that's not right. I've seen this pattern before. Yep. What I think it is, is this. This yep. thing that we're talking about, it might be the scope or it could be the value we're creating or it could be the IT haven't engaged properly. Help me, what, what's going on? Just yep. asking a really blunt, open question yep. requires gravitas yep. because relatively inexperienced salespeople are fearful of if I ask a blunt question that's very pointed, I may get rejected. Yep. Did yep. that come through at all? It did. And in fact, I, I would say even more than that, they it's it's not just the fear of rejection. I think it's um this feeling that um that average performers have that they they can't admit any weakness or get any they won't they don't want to open the Pandora's box of bad news. You know, like what might, you know, what's going on here? I can I might know deep down something is wrong with this situation, but I don't want to ask because I don't want to get any bad news off the table. I'd let's all pretend everything is great. Um you know, even even in the way I might ask you, um, this was pretty fascinating as well. I might ask you, you know, Mike, if I addressed your objection or your concern um, that you brought up, the difference between you saying absolutely thank you and you saying, yeah, I guess so, is actually a huge difference. It's a sign of what uh, linguists call implicit non-acceptance. Now, when a high performer hears, if an average performer hears that, they say. Mike, I'm going to put you down for yes, and let's keep going. Right? <laughs> if a high performer hears something, they, close, yeah, something close, right? Uh, uh, what a high performer will do is, is quite literally stop the conversation and say, "I, I don't want to read too much into this, but based on your response, I don't think I really nailed the answer there, or maybe there's something beyond what you asked that's actually there's a question behind the question. So let's talk about it, right? Because. I think if I was totally, if I had been very convincing and answered your question, you would have said absolutely yes. But the way you said it suggests maybe I did. So let's talk about it. So Matt, it's been amazing. It's been really, I mean, just- That's been really fun, Mike. No, it's been great fun. And I've learned so much. I always find when I meet guests on this podcast, you, you just learn interesting things from a different perspective. As as have I. Yeah, as have I. I mean, that's why I agree to do these things, because I always learn something new. And I, this this conversation was no uh, no exception to that rule. So. That's great. No, I'm, I'm really pleased. I'm really, really pleased. So um, what are your key takeaways? So imagine the audience here is there's lots of agency leaders. There's yep. lots of CMOs and marketing people inside brands. Yep. What are your kind of like two or three big takeaways regarding the kind of how customers are behaving, and the kind of signals to watch out for. Yeah, I, a, a couple of things. Uh, the first thing I would say is, from a at least from a sales standpoint, people ask me this a lot. There's a lot. You jolt is for different techniques, and those have multiple layers and, and different permutations. So there's a lot there. But people always ask the question, like, what should I go do on my next sales call? <laughs> and I I always say, here's the one thing that you uh, should not do is when your buyer hesitates, which in this environment is way more likely to happen than not. When they hesitate, when they start to vibrate, they get cold feet, they waffle and waver and backpedal a bit. Don't go after them with uh, the FOMO playbook. Like, Don't dial up the FUD. Don't hang that discount in front of them or dangle that discount in front of them because it might actually be, and, and more often than not, is the case that none of those things are going to motivate them. In fact, they might make it worse. And so your best, the best thing you can do is just don't hit the pause button and dig a little bit deeper to try to understand what's causing that hesitation, what's causing that that lack of progress, and dig a bit deeper 
Um, and when you do that, you might learn that if I offer that discount, I'm just you know hosing myself here. I'm I'm eating so much. Maybe even sending the customer the, the message you mentioned before that I was price gouging and I'm getting them a discount for for nothing, right? So I was happy to charge them more, and then that sows distrust and and it's a snowball effect and all that bad stuff. So there's a lot of bad things that can happen. Not least of which is you're you're coming at that scared customer with with like more scare tactics and just giving them more to be worried about. So so hit the pause button and just be more thoughtful. Now I think for for folks who are not in sales roles, but maybe in roles where they're supporting commercial people. So think about uh, marketing for sure. Think about um, uh, product and engineering and finance. There's a lot that we can do to help our our salespeople jolt customers into action. So. For instance, uh, just one example, we didn't talk much about this, but that T, taking risk off the table. I think when I share this with um, salespeople, their knee-jerk reaction is, well, I can't offer an opt-out clause. Well, our company doesn't do that. But there's a lot that you can do to create the sa- uh, even a perceived safety net with your customer. So here's one example, mutual value plans. So think about pulling forward your implementation partners, your customer success team members to start talking about the path to value. Here's what's going to happen. Here's who owns what. Here's the milestones, the checkpoints, the stage gates, the KPIs. Here's how we're going to know we're on track or off track. And by the way, here's some lessons we've learned about how things at this point can easily go sideways. But start to engage the customer in that conversation and, and show them there's a recipe to get that ROI. And we're going to at least do this, and we're probably going to do a lot better, is a phenomenal thing to do. Now, Salespeople shouldn't be creating that roadmap. That's a great role for for marketing and sales enablement and other parts of the organization to play. And then teach salespeople how to use it to create that safety net. Matt, it's been amazing. Really amazing. Where can people find out more about you uh, and the work you do? Yeah, LinkedIn is always a great place to get a hold of me. Tell me uh, you heard me on uh, on the show uh, and that you'd like to stay connected. And if you have a follow-up question, I'd be happy to try to answer it or you just want to be connected, let's be connected. Um, you can also check out more about the book at uh, jolteffect.com. Uh, there's a lot of free tools that we offer there as well as additional enablement training options we offer. People want to go go deeper down that rabbit hole. So, Matt, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.